For the instruction today, I'm going to suggest that we explore a question. Uh, Those of you who have been on these retreats before will know what that question is. And it's a very simple question. It's the question, what is this? We saw yesterday how our reactive habits, our impulses, our impulsivity, uh, our fixed opinions, our likes and our dislikes, are problematic because they somehow muddy and distort the space within which we live in terms of our own inner autonomy. It's difficult to make a clear ethical judgment when we're being pushed and pulled by what we want and what we fear and those views that we think of as sacrosanct. By letting that die down, by letting that go, by letting that be, we can come into a more uh, still and clear space, whether we call that nirvanic awareness <coughs> or mindfulness or simply awareness. It doesn't really matter. And I hope that in the course of these days together we've at least tasted that possibility relative perhaps to our daily habitual way of thinking and feeling and reacting, we touch something that seems a little bit more grounded, more embodied, uh, more balanced, more capable of uh, seeing clearly. Not only does reactivity impede and uh, obstruct, distort our capacity to make ethical judgments, it also gets in the way of being open and honest with ourselves, to admit that perhaps despite all of the views and opinions we have about ourselves, the world, when we touch this zone of quietness, we're also able to open up to the fact that we don't really know what on earth is going on. (laughs) That there is a a fundamental uh, and I think innocent ignorance that we are constantly trying to avoid or deny Our society certainly pushes us away from ignorance to knowledge and conviction and certainty. And yet at the heart of this practice, I feel, lies the uh, capacity to admit that we don't really know what's going on. That we've been thrown into this world at birth apparently without having any say in the matter, and uh, we will be summarily evicted again 
probably not at a time of our choosing. In the interim, we live this life. Our heart beats, we draw breath, we enter into relationships with one another, we find ourselves in this extraordinary world. And yet it's not going to last long. As we saw on the first evening, one of our retreatants never made it to this retreat. So in asking ourselves, what is this? We are finding a voice for this unknowing. We're opening ourselves to the sheer strangeness, weirdness, um, ineffability, mystery of life itself. The practice that I'm going to uh, introduce is not found in the early Buddhist tradition. It comes from the Chan or Son or Zen tradition of East Asia. But I think in many ways uh, Zen provides us with a very good example historically of a movement away from the certitudes and beliefs of the Buddhist religion and seeks to return to the source of what moved Gautama to embark on his quest in the first place. In 8th century China, where the Chan tradition began, there was a frustration at the scholarship, the rather elevated uh, position of the monks, a certain otherworldliness, a hierarchical institution, and the commitment to quite complex Buddhist philosophies. And the movement arose to say, enough of all of this, let's get back to basics. Let's just sit emulating Gautama as he sat beneath that tree and return to the questions that may well have motivated us to get interested in Buddhism in the first place, namely the questions of our own life. In the early tradition, the early Indian tradition, I think this is best uh, expressed through the legend of the prince who leaves the palace and once outside the safety zone of the city walls is, finds himself encountering sickness, aging, death. And it's at, the, at those moments that his life became a question for him rather than a set of more or less interesting facts. 
In other words, it was a return to the primacy of his own existence on earth. And the incredibly um, vulnerable and ephemeral nature of that existence. It's from those encounters with birth, sickness, aging and death that Gautama sets out on this quest, this noble quest as he later calls it, and arrives at a resolution. We don't need here to go into the details of that, although personally I feel it boils down to the practice of a fourfold task. But more importantly, I feel we need to acknowledge the primacy of our own existential question, the primacy of our own wonder at our own existence. And of course, by implication, the existence of others, the existence of the world in which we are unavoidably and profoundly uh, in embedded. The practice of what is this um, has its origins in a, a story, a very simple story concerning two monks in China, a young monk called Huai Zhang and an older monk called Hui Neng, who is the sixth patriarch of the Chan tradition in China. Hui Zhang has heard of this teacher living down in the south of China and he decides to go visit him. So he walks a distance of several hundred miles, arrives at the monastery and is um, brought to the quarters of Hui Neng. And when Hui Neng meets this young man, he says, and where have you come from? And Hui Zhang replies, I've come from Mount Song. And then Hui Neng says, but what is this thing? How did it get here? To this question, Hui Zhang was speechless. The text then says, he spent eight years in the monastery. That's it. I don't know what he did. Uh, but I think the implication is that he probably thought about that question. And at the end of this period, he returns to see the teacher, and uh, Hui Neng says, What is it? And Hui Zhang replies, To say it is like something misses the point. End of story. <laughs> now that was Huai Zhang's response. It's not much use for us simply to repeat that. But what might be of value is to consider that question. And to consider it not just as an intellectual exercise, 
but as a question that is asked, as the Zen texts say, with the marrow of our bones and the pores of our skin. In other words, a profoundly embodied questioning that in some senses quickly goes beyond words. So I'm going to invite you to ask this question in your meditation. This question, what is this? But to do so only when your mind has calmed down. Only when you feel you have touched, however tentatively, that ground of mindful awareness, that nirvanic space. And then very gently and very quietly drop this question into that space. What is this? Don't repeat the question again and again. There's no need to do that. It won't make things any different, really. Instead, seek to um, feel the resonance of that questioning in your entire body-mind. So let's imagine that the mind is relatively still and open, clear, like a pond, and then you drop the pebble of this question into that pond and you feel the ripples expanding outwards through your body, through your mind, and rest with that resonance with that ripple effect in order to bring this quality of puzzlement, perplexity, curiosity, amazement, astonishment, wonder, whichever word works for you, into your practice of mindful awareness. It's not a different kind of practice. It's simply another dimension of our capacity to be contemplative beings, meditative beings. If you've not done this kind of exercise before, it's entirely likely that by dropping in this question into the still pool, that will trigger associated thoughts. And you might immediately start losing touch with your nirvanic space and get caught up in all kinds of speculations. The mind is uh, conditioned to, um, whenever it hears a question, to come up with an answer. That's just what we do. That's how we've been educated and it's an entirely reasonable thing to do under most circumstances. But here, we're much more interested 
in the question than, than whatever clever Zen inflected answer you come up with. <laughs> but still, let those um, answers arise. You have little choice in the matter very often, and let them pass away. And when the mind gets more stable and settled again, at that point, reintroduce the question, what is this? And again, let it resonate. So it might be that in the course of a 30 or 40 minutes sitting, you only actually pose this question once or twice. What matters is not so much the form of words, but rather the, the, the bodily resonance that those words are able to trigger, such that your mindfulness and your awareness takes on a more perplexed edge. There's a, a danger with mindfulness meditation that after a while, particularly when you get good at it, a certain flatness can come in. It's as though you've learned how to simply eyeball reality a bit more steadily. You, you feel sometimes that meditation is just learning to stare at yourself in a kind of blank, equanimous way. And of course there is a great value to the stillness, to the clarity, but Stillness and clarity in themselves do not um, necessarily um, engage you with what is going on. They might leave you slightly disassociated, present but somehow cut off. After doing many years of Vipassana type practices, I found that this uh, questioning brought a kind of uh, freshness, a certain sharpness, a vitality, a confusion to the quality of awareness. Let me illustrate also another way of looking at this. There's a, a koan uh, in somewhere in the Zen records, I can't remember precisely which monks it refers to. But it's very simple. The teacher says to the student, if you say this is a table, I will give you 30 blows. If you say this is not a table, I will give you 30 blows. What is it? This is the question we're asking. And although this is phrased very much in the language of Taoist, Chinese, Buddhist thought, it's actually very close to what the Buddha described as samaditi, uh, usually translated as right view. I would prefer complete Vision. 
when asked by Kachanagota what is complete vision, Gautama replied, for the most part, the world is caught up in the duality of it is and it is not. He recognises how so much of our thinking about things, so much of our language, um, is embedded in this either-or thinking. Something either exists or it doesn't exist. Something is either right or it's wrong. And for practical purposes, that's entirely not a problem. In fact, we couldn't even make sense to each other and to ourselves if we didn't um, uh, work within these ground rules of human language. Is, is not, are effectively the foundations for what Aristotle calls the law of the excluded middle. Something either is A or it is not A. Now that may be fine in terms of intelligibility in discourse, but it's actually not reflective of the ambiguity, the complexity of life and experience itself, in which these kinds of simple dichotomies, it is or it is not, don't capture or simply cannot capture the uh, fluidity of language itself, of life, sorry, of life itself. We see this actually exhibited in a, this issue around gender identity today. People refusing to identify as man or woman. And the acknowledgement of a fluidity in that identity. I think something similar is going on here, but at a rather more existential level that has little to do with gender politics. But the gender politics picks it up. The same basic wish to acknowledge ambiguity and complexity rather than to continue just categorizing people or things in boxes that are opposites of something else. So when the Zen master says, if you say it's a table, I'll give you 30 blows. If you say it's not a table, I'll give you 30 blows. He's doing the same thing. He's, he's, no, he's, he's discarding, rejecting quite forcibly, the dualities of is and is not. But for the Zen master, this then throws you into a state of uncertainty, of unknowing and of questioning. In other words, what is this? You can't say it is, you can't say it is not. What is it? Your avenues, your habitual avenues have been cut off. You're left holding the question. In the Pali Sutta that I just sketched. Um, Gautama doesn't develop it in that way. But what he does say is that 
to dwell in this uh, neither is nor is not frame of mind is the middle way. Or he simply calls it the madhyama, the center, the middle. And this leads me to think that the question, what is this, captures very well samaditi, the complete view. The complete view is not a view of things being this way or that way, but it's a view, or perhaps we might say a perspective, in which we rest in the uncertainty of not knowing. The flip side of which is the question, what is this? Or simply what? Or simply a kind of wordless astonishment. That, I feel, is the middle, the centre, from which the way, the path, unfolds. So grounding ourselves in this question is also grounding and centering ourselves um, within our own lived experience, moment to moment. The mind, of course, being a reactive thing, would far rather there be a clear-cut answer. So when it does that, let it go. Second task. Let go that reactivity of it's this or it's that. And instead keep returning to this middle, this centre, this uncertainty, this unknowing and this curiosity. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.